You are listening to the Shot Caller Podcast with me, your host, Casey Diaz and Joe Needler. You can find us online at Casey Diaz Author on Facebook, at the Shot Caller Book on Instagram, or at the Shot Caller BK on Twitter. You can always visit us at CaseyDiaz.net and send an email to info at CaseyDiaz.net for any speaking engagements or questions you might have. Today we have a, a special guest, man. Um, this is a friend um, who actually um, I never met outside. Um, out here, uh, we were actually rivals in, in, in our neighborhoods, and uh, I met him through Raz. I met him through Raz, uh, and uh, you know, some of our listeners know how fit I am and how I hit the gym continually. So, I met Joel at the gym. Why is everybody laughing? Huh? That's, that's, no, I just saw a rabbit run by, I wasn't laughing at you. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, uh, you know, Raz uh, introduced me. We should give a shout out to um. Build forty five. Well, that's where uh, we 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 met with uh, Joel. Raz introduced me to him, and um, you know, so that's our guest, man, Joel. Joel, good to have you here, brother. Um, uh, I know it's a uh, we were in talks uh, a while back ago, and here we are now. It's it's a it's an honor, brother, to to have you here. Um, not only you know just to share your story, but he's also a believer, and um, you know, just a, a reformed believer. So hey, you know the make sure the make sure the experience. Okay. The, yeah, the, the the theology is on point because <laughs> this dude's gone to school in the whole nine yards, man. Uh, I sit up straight, then I didn't know. No, no laying on on the hands, and then you falling backwards on your chair, and we can't do that today. <laughs> we save that for another podcast. <laughs> What's your last name? Do you have a last name? Uh, yeah, it's Aguilar. You want me to spell that for you? A-G-U-I-L-A-R. <laughs> Aguilar. Aguilar. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Bienvenido. Uh, thank you. Oh, that's, a be- that's, that's better than me, bro. Hey, that's all I got. So enjoy it. Oh, you got? All right. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, you have the accent on, so I'm yeah. fine. Pero, yeah. pero cuando yo era un niño, vivo en Los Angeles, California. Oh, perfect. No, oh, all right. Yes, that's like Ricardo Monteblan. I throw a little bit of him in there whenever I... All right. Hey, who was his sidekick? Sidetrack. <laughs> who was his sidekick, bro? <laughs> who is it? Yeah. <laughs> Keep him away from the, talking about the little people. Hey, you brought it up. I, You know, first thing that caught my attention was the sidekick. But we have Joel, man. And, um, you know, we want to hear your story. Uh you growing up in Los Angeles, um, you know, we want to know how was it like for you in your early years prior to, you know, um, getting in the, in the whole mix of the gang culture in Los Angeles. What was life back then? So I come from immigrant parents. Both my parents were immigrants. Um, my dad was Mexican. My mom was Salvadorian. So I was mixed between Mexican and Salvadorian. Um, they were both, um, they only had a sixth grade education, both my parents. Uh, my dad started here working in the fields, then um, he became a factory worker, then he became uh, a security guard. Um, but my grandfather was here during the Bracero times, so he was here in the 40s. Bracero was, it was a time period like before, like right after World War II, where they were having a lot of um, Mexican workers come over here. and. And, and be part of the workforce. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's kind of like the history of Los Angeles with me. Um, my mom came at a very young age. I would say maybe seventeen years old from El Salvador. Um, 
And so they met out here and my dad was 10 years older than my mom. So my dad was already like in his late 20s, early 30s when he met mom. And I'm the youngest of one other sibling that I have, my brother who's older, like a year and a half older than I am. Um, and so life was pretty much, uh, I was born and raised between, I mean, back then it was, it was called, it was referred to as South Central, but it wasn't really South Central. It was like Southwest area. Um, it's now they call it the West Adam district. Uh, but it's between downtown LA and South Central. So it's between, it rests right in between that. So, so like what streets, um, uh, <laughs> is it near USC? Yeah. It's right there on the USC campus. Yeah. On Hoover and Adams. Yeah. So not so, too yeah. far from Casey. I mean, Casey, that's very close yeah, to where yeah, yeah. yeah, down the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. We share, matter of fact, like a couple of like streets. That was kind of like where I grew up. Um, I went to Norwood Elementary School. Then I went to junior. I went to, um, I, I was actually bused to the Valley. Yeah, so I was bused to Robert Frost Junior High School in San Fernando, in Granada Hills. And that was kind of like, you know, the first... I think, um, cause back then I wasn't really, like I was entertaining gangs, but I wasn't really from a street gang. But that was, I think that was kind of like the first point where I realized that school was, like I was way out of my um, education when I went to Robert Frost. Um, so Robert Frost to me was kind of like, I would say the point where I made kind of like the, the the worst decision in my life um, because school was so difficult for me. Um, and like I said, um, it was a school where everything was just different. Um, so I didn't know what brunch was and we had brunch there and I was just like, what the hell is this? Like all I knew was, was <laughs> breakfast and lunch. And so that threw me off. Another thing that threw me off is that we used to have coyotes that used to go into our football field. And I was just like, wow, we're in nature. Like this is like the mountains were like hills were all around us. And so that was shocking to me. Shocking to me was that we also had carpets in our classroom. Like, you know, and it was like bungalows. And first time I had a bagel. First time I had like, like honestly, <laughs> people that were not brown. So it was, it was, it was like a culture shock for me. And so I realized fast that I was not at, like in the same part with the rest of the students. Like I had a learning disability, I would say. Um, it was a day where I realized that, hey, I went back home and I, I remember asking my dad, like, you know, I, I can't do my homework. I can't do this. I don't understand it. And can you help me? And he looked at it and he's like, I can't help you. And it was right then and then that I realized that I was out of place. This is not the place for me. So I was going back and like, I felt disempowered. I think that was the first time where I realized that I was disempowered by it. I, I didn't, I didn't feel like, like, honestly, I felt like I was, like I was worthless in a sense. Um, and what, what was it? What, what was the reason that they actually bust you out? I mean, cause usually, you know, from back then, you got busted out if you got kicked out of school or, you know, and then we ended up in in schools out here in the Valley. But it was, was it just like a program that they put you on or? Yeah, it was a pilot program oh, for a lot okay. of people in the inner city. They wanted them to have a better education. So they said, hey, let's take them out to, you know, 
suburbia. Let's take them out to the valley and see. Did it have anything to do with Prop 13? I'm not sure if it was Prop 13. 70s, I think, but yours might have been more in the early 80s. I don't know. What what yeah, time yeah. period do you think? Yeah, it was the 80s for sure. 85, 85, 84. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but yeah, it was, it was a pilot program for that. I remember. I mean, and just like, because my brother was a year older than me and he was already going there. So my mom was like, I need you to go where your brother's at. You'll get a better education. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was kind of like I was getting bust over there when I was coming back into my neighborhood, you know, and I was with my friends. They were going all to the local school and they were having a different experience than I was. It was just a different narrative. And me not being part of that narrative was also kind of like isolation for me. And I felt alienated. I, as, as, it, as, it, as it was already, I was, I was alienated because I wasn't full-blooded Mexican. So I grew up in a neighborhood where it was the majority of them were Mexican and because I was just half. And like, I, have, I was dealing with a lot of insecurity. It was an identity, you know, issue with me. Um, and so, so that was something that I had, I wanted to overcome and I wanted to deal with. So the first thing I did was I told my mom, Hey, the reason why I'm not making it here in school is because I can't relate to anything here. And so I need to go to the local school and that local school was John Adams junior high school. And it was then that I realized that my friends were actually really now getting entertained by the gang lifestyle. And so they would come back and say, Oh, Oh, we got chased by this gang and you know this and once i knew it like in a matter of a week they were all part of the of the local street gang and so you know me walking you know coming from from robert frost and feeling the way i was feeling and you know like domestically at home like there was no guidance other than you know your responsibility just to go to school but both parents were working i would come back from school like no one was there and I just wanted to be in the streets and me seeing like the street gang and how <clears throat> powerful they look and how kind of they commanded this respect. And, you know, think about it. I'm a kid who's disempowered by education, by, you know, there's nothing that gives me any validation. So I'm looking at these guys and I'm like, that's what I want. I want that status. I want, I want to be respected. I want to have that power that they have. Um, and so, you know, once I convinced mother to pull me out of Robert Frost and send me to John Adams, then that's when I realized that it was a different world. Um, then I joined the street gang and and then I started noticing that it was even worse. Like I couldn't attend school. If I did, I would, you know, just because of the gang violence at the time. Um, so I would I couldn't go in during first period. I had to go in later. I had to skip first period because if I went during when school started, most likely I could get jumped or get shot at. So my my thing is is that I needed people to I needed all the students to be in school so that I can like come in like unannounced, hop the fence and go in into class. And in school I felt safe, but like even there in school, you know, I had to still deal with, you know, rival gangs and and so it was always some tension. And so after school, six period was always skipped as well because I had to get out before they let school out. So and, and, and I, 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 I had no idea. I've never heard that before, that even though you're still trying to go to school, you got you to watch your back. Oh, yeah. How you enter and how you exit. That's quite a life. And you're what, 12 years old, 13, yeah. maybe? Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm 13, turning 14. And and so but like at first at first. Like I joined the street, I joined actually a football 
team. That's what it was. Like my football team was dead and, and it was actually just us having like fun and it was fun. I had older friends who were playing high school football. And at the time, like a lot of these gangs were football, they were football teams. Like they were jocks that were playing in like Belmont High School, Manual Arts, Jefferson, Marshall. Like Rainbow. these were, yeah, these were all guys that were playing football, Friday night football, but on the weekends they wanted to gather around and play. And so they started this, you know, like these clubs, they started like these football clubs and that's what they were. And that's how it started. It was all fun at first. Then, you know, from one day to another, it just got really serious. And and so we were kind of like swallowed up by the major like street gang that was there, which was which was the the one that they were actually a street gang. So, you know, from football, from from playing football to just, you know, everything being like play. Then it just got serious with like guns and knives and and so it just it progressed from from just play to that and once that kicked in then you know i think i got a little bit more um involved with the street gang because of because of um just knowing that the stakes were really high like then i started seeing people like getting shot people dying and so at that point okay now this is serious where do I go from here? Um, that time, Casey, that overlaps with when you you were still on the street, right? 1985, 86, right? Yeah, I'm still I'm still on the street, and you 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 don't want I don't know if this happened in your neighborhood. I I I, I would imagine so, but um, I remember growing up, and if like you were a kid that was like an ESL, you did not want to be in an ESL class. Like that was like. You you were you know you were gonna get picked on from the gate you know and so everybody, which surprises me because, you know our parents spoke uh, Spanish in the Holland Yards and you know that's how that was the language to speak at home but yet when you step out, you're almost like if you don't you're not speaking English, you were made fun of by by the rest of uh, you know uh, your schoolmates or whatever. Um, and th did you have that experience as well? Yeah, I had that experience. I had a speech therapist actually oh, when, really? I was in, when I was in elementary school because I used to, I couldn't pronounce the S. I would go, I would like slur my S's. That's how I would. And so I had a speech uh, therapist to kind of like show me how to pronounce the certain, certain letters, vowels. And so, yeah, I mean, that kind of all buys into, or it, it, it adds to like this image and this identity that you know you suffer from um i've always felt i've never felt american i never felt mexican i never felt salvadorian i felt like i was just an alien like <laughs> who am i like what yeah where do i fit in you know like who am i like are you really like so i i really suffer from that like that was really really my insecurity my biggest so i overcompensated because i wanted people to see me i wanted people to kind of like i wanted to be accepted and um it wasn't, it wasn't, and I think that's kind of like, and you know, dysfunctional home in a sense that, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. He was a functional alcoholic. He would, he would go to work, come back on the, on Friday nights and get drunk. And to me, that was like, to my family, it was like a torment, but to me, it was like the happiest moments of my life because, you know, to me it was like my dad, my dad was a big Mexican. He was six, three. 
Um, and and that's and, a tall dude. Yeah, man. he was he was he was a big Mexican. So they used to call him his 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 handle was El Grande. You know, <laughs> so I was the diminutive. I was El Grandecillo. So so you know, my my dad would go out on Friday nights. He would take me, and that was fun for me because that meant my dad was going out to go play poker with his friends, and that meant that I would be with him at all hours of the night. That meant candy, sodas, chips, and just being around like older men playing cards, talking about their Pueblo, talking about Mexico, and then they would bring out the guns and they would shoot. So at a very young age, I was exposed to fire guns. I was exposed to like, this was kind of like, you know, we they were raised that way. So it was like, okay, I remember the first time I shot my dad's gun. It was a 357 Magnum. You know, I was maybe 11 years old. Um, and I just remember that I was scared. That's a big gun for a little 11-year-old. Yeah, and I remember, like, you know, just hearing the pop scare me, terrified me. And, like, and I just remember my, da my dad saying, Orale. And then everyone, Andale, grandecio, jalele. You know, and, and <laughs> I remember me, like, grabbing this gun and, and, like, shaking. And my dad just cupping cupping my hand with the gun. And my dad, you know, he had big hands. And I remember me taking the first shot and really... That was the day that I kind of like lost fear of what Fires. the pop and the gun, yeah. And so, you know, at that age too, he taught me how to drive just because, you know, that meant me taking him and his friends to the liquor store to go buy beer and, you know, at a young age. So, you know, it's kind of like all the circumstances were there. I was, it was like the perfect circumstances for this lifestyle. And so by the time I joined the gang, I know how to drive, I know how to shoot a gun. And it was just perfect. So think about it. You know, this is this is a young kid who is suffering from identity crisis, insecurity, um, feeling very disempowered by education, and just you know. Well, also, if I can interrupt, Joel, I'm sorry, but what would happen if you didn't join the gang and you still lived in that neighborhood? I mean, wouldn't you stand out? I, I th yeah, I think I would have. Um, I don't know what like that's always because my brother never joined the gang. That's weird. Wow. Like there was people in my neighborhood that didn't join the gang. And my brother was one of them. So, I, you know, if you were to ask my mom, like, what was different about Joel? She would tell you, you know, he was a knucklehead since he was a kid. He was very precocious. So my brother, even at age 14, 15, he was still playing with his toys. Oh. I let that go when I was eight years old. I didn't want to play with toys. I wanted to be out. I wanted to play basketball. I wanted to play football. I wanted to go swimming. So, you know, that's just what it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah I gravitated to my dad, manly things my brother didn't. But then again, my brother had a child when he was 16 years old. He had his first kid. And I think that kind of like also changed him a little bit. But he's been working since the age of 12, 13. I never had a job like that. I didn't start. I remember my first job was a summer job. Um, my friend's uh, dad used to do landscaping and I remember he's like, okay, for the summer, you want to make some extra money? I'm like, sure, let's go. And so I remember, you know, like cutting lawns in Beverly Hills and, and I'm like, oh no, this is not for me. Like, I'm not going to do this. You know? Yeah, this is work. Yeah, this is not for me. This is work. This is hard money. I'm yeah. like, and, and, and you know, it, 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 once again, it added to kind of like, you know, this this weight that I was carrying, you know, with this insecurity and this identity crisis that I was going through. And so my thing was like, no, I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm going to either, you know, rob someone who sells dope and has a lot of money or I'm going to sell dope. And, you know, I'm just, this is not me. Um, so, um, 
I think I realized that at, at a young age. And one of the other things, the aspiration of college was never there. Um, so my thing is, okay, there's two ways. It's either prison or, you know, either I'm going to die. Honestly, at that point, I, I didn't think I was going to make it to my 18th birthday. Like, that's just the way I lived. And, and you know, one of the things that, 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 um, that, that I always noticed in, in, in circles that, are, that we came from, it, whether you were in a Mexican uh, family or a Salvadorian family, a Hispanic family, you know, usually it's always a male figure that gives you like the first drink and you're like eight and, you know, eight or nine years old. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, here, taste this. And, and it's almost like it's, it's a machismo thing. It's a, you know, it's like a rite of passage to to a young boy. And uh, I remember, when, you know, I didn't have a great relationship at all with my father, but I remember him like, you know, you know, there's a meme out there uh, on social network that, you know, uh, the last uh, uh, best generation was Generation X. And it has a picture of a, of a dad and a little, you know, four year old sipping on a, a bottle of beer, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, but that did that happen in in your household as well or no it didn't really yeah it didn't it's weird how it happened with me um honestly i i i didn't i didn't i didn't the first time i i drank beer was at a ditching party <laughs> at a di oh, i haven't heard that word in a long yeah. time <laughs> ditch was, party. We, were, we were skipping school it's, we skipped school and, <laughs> what is that <laughs> it's it's skipping skipping school in someone's you know home yeah yeah and but so, but you invite like all your homeboys yeah. or all your friends yeah and it's a party while your you know parents are not there, and it starts you know nine in the morning, whatever it is, and and you got to clean up the pad before uh, your parents get there, and it's a mess, you know. Yeah, so that's that's how it started with me drinking, but I was n never really a drinker. I was more of like I was I was a pothead, so I was introduced um, to pot by uh, an older Harpies member named Negro. I still remember, I remember sitting down in front of the park and. And um, I was ditching school. I was I was not in school, and he was he was selling heroin at the time. Like my street gang was known for selling heroin, and um, it was early in the morning. It was like maybe six thirty in the morning, and that's when most of the people who who use heroin come and buy heroin. And I remember he sitting down. And he goes, "What's up? What's up? What's up, John?" I'm like, "What's going on?" He's like, and he said in Spanish, "Que es un marongayo?" Like we want to smoke a joint. And I'm like, "All right." And at the time, I'm like, you I, had never, no I had no clue what it was. And so he rolled it. He showed me how to roll it. This is how you do it. And and he sparked it up. And I remember, like, taking the first hit. And I was just like, whoa, what is this? And that was that was the first time I got introduced to weed. And that was, like, my whole thing. My whole thing was weed. And then, you know, I used a little bit of heroin as I, as I grew up. Um, like, most of, like, my friends that grew up used, if it was a marijuana, they usually used heroin and and also PCP. PCP was was big, but there was a generation before me. Like I noticed that the guys that wanted to use PCP didn't like didn't like like the downers. They just wanted to kind of like you know I don't know. PCP was weird. That was a weird drug for me. Um, but yeah, and so that's that's how I I was introduced to that. In fact, when I was like with my dad, like I said, it was it was weird because. Um, you know, I, I stopped kissing my dad on the lips at the age of 12. Like my dad to me was like the superhero, you know, he was a big man. And so like, I really like, to me, my dad was everything. Um, and like I said, I, he, you know, I went with him everywhere. Um, but it was weird because, you know, he was the nicest 
like endearing person when he was drunk. And like during the week, he was just very serious. And so the affirmations that I used to get from him were confusing. Um, you know, he would still talk to me as, as if I was six or seven years old when I was 12, you know, and like, that's not what I wanted to hear at the time. But, you know, I'm thinking I'm growing up, I'm becoming a man. And like, I was, you know, like this, this was kind of like weird for me, but that's how my dad, he always treated me like his baby. And I get it to a point, but I never heard the affirmation of you're doing good in school. Let me see your grades. Like that was never there. So it was, it was, it wasn't what I needed at the time. Looking back now in hindsight, I can see like where the problem was, like all that was building up to me, you know, kind of like even to a point where once I really became a full fledged, a full fledged, like street gang member, like I was ashamed of my dad. Like to me, it's like, man, oh, like I, I wanted like the gang member to be my dad. I wanted to be like the older guy that was cool and. I wanted him to be my dad. And I had friends whose, whose parents were like, cool. They were the parents that used to smoke kids, used to smoke weed with their kids. You know, they were like, they were already a second generation of gang members. And that's what I wanted. I wanted parents like that, not immigrant parents who like, to me, like I looked down on my parents, you know, and I was ashamed. I was ashamed of them. And, and, and that kind of like fed into me, you know, not wanting to, you know, listen to anything that they had to say. I, at that point, I just became very rebellious. I let myself like fully embrace, you know, this, this gang culture and I was gonna make a name for myself. I was gonna become someone. And, and so that led me to um, committing a crime when I was 17 years old, 1991. Um, I was already, I already had contact with like, like the police and juvenile hall and and so that just allowed me to gain more status. So, you know, again, it feeds into this image that I wanted to like portray and that gave me status. And so coming out with that, I wanted more of that. And it led me to me committing a crime at the age of 17, 1991, it was a robbery murder, which um, um, I didn't get, I didn't get apprehended for that crime, but it was there. Um, and it wasn't until like three years later when I commit another crime that I get arrested and this other crime comes and now they're like, okay, we have the evidence. By this point now, I already knew that I was, it was over for me. Um, and so, and once I, I get charged for this 1991 case, um, they're going with me like, they're seeking, you know, the maximum punishment. So it was a murder robbery. Um, and I'll say his name, his name was Gregor Antonio Lamont. That was my victim's name. Um, it was a robbery that, you know, it was just supposed to be us. We knew that he was selling, the, this was the information I got, is that he was selling narcotics or he was selling like rocks at the time and that we we're just gonna go and rob him and that's it. But as everything you know it just didn't work out that way so we robbed we we, we didn't even rob him because he had nothing so it we didn't even have time to rob him so as soon as we 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 um it was me and two other um friends of mine um when we go in and it's time for us to like um to you know to go inside like he we knew that he had the drugs inside his apartment and we met him at the hallway 
and we we didn't even get into his apartment because as soon as we we reached him my friends let off a shot shot him in the in, in the face and and so he passed away he died oh, actually he was murdered and we we ran and it wasn't until like like i said three years later that they actually cracked the case and we all got arrested for it i was already arrested for something else so you know um once that came um they sought you know the maximum punishment which was life without the possibility of parole and that's what i got casey can you comment on that because casey said the laws changed between the time that he when you went in, is that right? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I went there uh, a few years before Joel and, um, you know, you get caught that four year difference made all the difference. I mean, that, that, the, the laws at that point are very heavy and they're trying to wash everybody up, meaning they want, uh, heavy sentences like life without parole, uh, the death penalty and, and, and which I'm surprised that didn't go after that. Uh, because usually with it's a robbery homicide they want the death penalty almost right off the bat you know so that those just those four years made a lot of difference and everybody that got busted in 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 in, in my year you, you know, to me I, like i look back at it now and i go not that we got away with it but one would say you got away with it because you only served you know a, a, not even a decade and you're out again. And this is this, you know, man, I'll let him share it uh, as far as how much time you serve, but that's a long time, man. That's, that's a, and you weren't even expected to get out. Yeah. Which is, you know, uh, I don't want to mess up. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you to you tell your story because it's an amazing story and it's, an, it's a story that only God could have you know, intervened and, and done something uh, in Joel's life. But yeah, man, so here you are and, 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 and I mean. Yeah, so, so because I committed this crime when I was 17 years old, they didn't have a death penalty for, seven, for juveniles at the time. California yeah. never had that. Other states did, but not California. So the, the, it was, and it was a discretionary sentence. So, so because it was it was a special allegation, which means it was a special circumstance case, I was I was I was my only sentence was life without the possibility of parole. The judge had discretion to lower that to twenty five years to life, but in practice, in theory, he had it, but in practice, they never yeah, they never did it. And so, so the, he sentenced me to the maximum, which was life without the possibility of parole. What what, what came to your mind when you when you're hearing you know your 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 with your your counsel and he's telling you this is what they're pushing you know what like at the time you're not really you're a kid right yeah and you don't care you don't care and that, not, that's the reality of it yeah and you're thinking like ah they're, i'm not gonna spend life here yeah, yeah, yeah like you know those words really don't, don't penetrate yeah they, <laughs> they really don't mean what they actually yeah, yeah. yeah and it's not till later later in 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 life where I realized that, hey, this is where I'm going to die. Like, yeah. this is, they meant life. They meant life without the possibility of parole. That was life without the possibility of parole. And then, you know, once you walk into the prison system and you see people who have been in prison for 20, 30, even some 40 years, and they're old now, you realize, like, hey. You got some B numbers, some A yeah, numbers. numbers yeah. It's like, yeah, this is where I'm going to die. Yeah. Man. Yeah, this is. This, this is the is, end. Yeah, this is the end. You know, but. You know, the thing with me is that 
you know, God touched my life in a cell early on in my, in my, in my, I was still fighting my case when God touched my life. So you're still in, in the halls or in the county no, jail? I'm in the county jail. In the county. Yeah, I'm in the county jail and, you know, God touched my life in, in a six man cell. I still remember. Um, and I'm going to give you just a description. So it was me walking into a cell and it was, I was the only one in that cell, but it was dirty. It was cold. It was a bunch of graffiti. And I remember that the lights were dim because, you know, you, there's not good lighting. And, and me there in reflection, just thinking about how I ruined my whole life. And in that moment, like I started to like replay my life and I replayed also the crime and like everything just came before me so clear. And I just remembered that that's how I felt. I felt like that room, I felt dark, I felt dirty, I felt like empty, alone. And in that moment, I realized, you know, another thing, like I remember the reflection of, of me growing up, also having um, evangelicals come into my home, knocking at the door, sharing Christ with me. I remember the seven day Advent church, the corner of my house. I remember me going camping with them to like summer camp. I remember the Baptist church also. And I remember like hearing, and, and, and I remember them saying, hey, if, if the, they were preaching Christ to me, but at the time it didn't make sense. But I still remember vividly in that cell, I remember them saying to me that if, if you confess your sins to Jesus, that he will forgive you. And at that moment, that's and I just I remember also my catechism because I grew up Catholic. So I remember my catechism classes. Um, I remember like I, to me, it was vivid that crucifixion and the words that if you confess your sins, Christ will forgive you. And I was dealing with a lot of conviction. I think I was dealing with guilt. I was dealing with the fact that, you know, I had, I had participated in a crime that took someone's life. And I just needed to be absolved from that. And I remember me getting up from that cell, like feeling this desperate, like need to wanting to have forgiveness. And I remember I walked to the back of the cell and I just dropped to my knees and I started crying and I just started asking like God, if he was there, if he was true to forgive me that I'm sorry. And in me saying that prayer, I still remember when, when I got up from, from that prayer that something had changed. And I knew it, I knew it instantly. It wasn't like, you know, it was a progression. To me, it was instant. I knew something had happened. Something inside me had changed. And although I I knew that maybe this is the place where I was going to spend the rest of my life, I knew that I had forgiveness. And if I were to die, I would be okay with God. I don't know why. I can't explain it. It was just the feeling. It's almost like the feeling when I said... Um, when you move on to a neighborhood that's calm, that's, it's almost like, you know, um, it's, it's like, there's a feeling of safety. I don't know how to explain it, but it, you just feel it, that you're safe. In LA, I never felt that. So it's almost that feeling. For some reason, I felt that something had changed and I felt it first. And then I just kind of like walked through it. Now I just wanted to know like what had happened to me, like what happened to me, something happened to me. This was a spiritual awakening that, I've never experienced anything like it before. You still remember the what module it was? You know what? It was it was it was me going to court and they put me in this holding tank. Oh no, a holding tank. Yeah, but it was it was it was weird. It was just like um 
it was it was like a big tank and i just remember that that was that was the place and i remember me getting in in the bus and on my way back to the county jail i just remember that this was like you know it was it was i was different it was different yeah yeah yeah. wow man and and like so this is an experience or an encounter rather with god and you in a cell no one really like yeah you remember the people knocking on your door those encounters back then but to me that's incredible that you're you're in there just so that you, you we paint the picture of what the county jail looks like and that processing uh, it's not really the the best place to become born again because it's 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 rocking and rolling in there you know it's 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 a riot at any given time uh, somebody's getting got uh, there's moving all over the place it's not like you could you know walk out of of a module, go to another one, or you don't have that that type of, uh, you know, I'm trying to look for the word, um, like the, like to to have a, a a a place to go to, and all right, well, I'm just gonna go ahead and program, and I'm gonna buy my own business. It, it's not like that at all in the county jail. So that's a dangerous place to to go. Hey, by the way, fellas, um, uh, I'm I'm. I'm done here. Yeah. You know, there is no, uh, I don't want, I hate using this word, but there is no protection at all. Yeah. You're in the mix of, of, of everything. So that's incredible to me, man. And, and, and you're what, 17, 18 at this point? Yeah. 19. 19. Wow, man. That, that's, that's heavy, Joe, man. Yeah. That's, it, that's a commitment right there. Yeah, it was. And, and I think it, it kind of like, in a sense, um, I've always been, or older people have always been drawn to me. I was precocious as a child, but even like, even at my later teens, like I was always, like the, the older people always gravitated to me. They used to say, oh, you're young, but you have an old soul. And, <laughs> and I, I, you know, it was just, I was just, it was just like that. So me going into the county jail and, and, and I remember me, the first thing I did was separate. That's the first thing I did. And I became almost like a pariah in prison, in, in jail. So it was just like, that dude's weird. He's over there reading the Bible all the time. Like, um, I don't know. So he's a homie, but he's weird. And that's the homie from, and they would say my neighborhood. And he's like, but he's weird. And I remember all these older guys used to come and they would want to talk to me. They would want to talk to me about the Bible. What are you reading? And stuff like that. And so then it became, it became clear to me, okay, this is what I needed now is to fellowship. And I and like the only people I could fellowship in, in the county jail were blacks. They were the only ones that were actually reading the Bible. The Protestant servant. Yeah. So that's and that's and that's weird, you know. So my my experience in the county jail was weird because, as you said, there was, you know, it was it was they still had green lights and they would yeah. still had green lights. People were getting, you know, stabbed and beat, um, riots, and even through all that, like God saw me through all that. And I can tell you, like testimonies were where, you know, riot was about to break off and we're in the middle. And I remember like us praying, like really getting into prayer wow. and, 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 and God just intervening and not allowing the riot to happen. So there was a lot of stuff like at the very beginning of my, of my faith, I remember I saw a lot of signs from God, like signs that you would say, I know nowadays, I'm not that I'm skeptical, but yeah. nowadays I would be like, ah, oh, I don't know if this would happen, but like, 
I just remember seeing so many signs that God was with me. And, and you know what? I, I think, Joel, uh, it, it, it's that, I think it, it's, it's almost like that to everyone that, that comes to Christ in the beginning. It's like we almost need to see something that's not natural in order for our, our faith to be built. Because, you you know, think about it. You're, you're like an infant. When you come to Christ, you're, you're like, the Bible refers to it as a baby in Christ. They, they, that, that baby needs to see security. That baby needs to see that there's a father figure, that there's protection from that father. And I think that that's why he allows for us to see certain certain things. And you could call it supernatural. You could call it, you know, uh, a miracle. You could call it whatever. But I think that that's why he allows those things early on in, in, in our salvation, because we do need that. We need to see the hand of God, like visible in in our lives through events like that, you know. Because you think about it, uh, every single one of us has seen a riot, and it just takes off. I mean, it's you could feel it when it's about to happen. You're in the mix of it, and the next thing you know, I mean, you're you know, it, it's there's nowhere to run. You're gonna partake, and if you don't, you're gonna get dealt with. Or your whole neighborhood would get a green light. So to to hear that, and you're in the the middle of that, that is a miracle. Yeah, that's a miracle, hands down. And, and I don't even care what anybody else would would say about that. That's a miracle. One, it that ride didn't take off. Two, that your life is spared throughout all this time in there. I'm sure that you saw many rides happening, and you're sitting here in a podcast many years later. With with no no Unsc injury, yeah, unscathed. Unscathed, yeah. yeah. It's like what? How does that happen? Yeah, how does wow, that man. Yeah. That that's that's the God we serve. That that's <laughs> simple as that. And so even like, and I'm still going to court. Yeah, yeah. You know, and once I get found guilty and I get sentenced, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to prison. And I know that I'm going to maximum security prison because with yeah. my sentence, there is no... Yeah, there's no level three or anything There, there is no minimum security. So I already know that this is where I'm going. But I had enough experience with God knowing what God had done for me in the county jail that for me to go to prison was... It, it, it was already like, okay, I've seen God's hand at work. And I know that he's going to look out for me. Even though I had the sentence of life without the possibility of parole, something inside me always believed that something was going to happen, that God was going to do something in my life. And he did. He kind of like molded me in, in prison. He he gave me a new hunger for like his word, gave me a new hunger for like education. Um, and so prison was a very lonely place for me in the sense that I was, again, the pariah. I was, I was like a lot of people wouldn't relate to me because prison becomes a, like a culture in, in itself. It's an underworld and like you have the worst of the worst there and and so the last thing they want is someone who is is like counter counterculture. Anyone that like goes against the the grain is is it's just not welcome. But you know, unbeknownst to them, that you know, greater was he that was in me, right? And <laughs> than he that was out in the world. And and I think that was kind of like the benefit that you know, I go into prison, I go into maximum security, and most of these prisons are like locked down. Most of these prisons. You know, don't have a lot of program. I remember, and I was, you know, like I said, at, it was, it was only in Christ that I actually kind of like knew my identity. Now, like, it's weird how I kind of come to this 
notion of regaining my identity in Christ, like knowing that I'm a Christian now. This is who I am. And and so I didn't see like race, although I was forced, but I didn't see it. Like to me, if you were a northerner and you were a Christian, you're my Christian brother, black, you're my Christian brother. And so it kind of gave me a belonging that I didn't have. Um, and like I said, you know, my first, we would say, 12 years in prison were spent just reading and spent like working in law libraries, working in chapel. And, you know, I, so I remember like everyone would buy TVs. Oh, I'm gonna get a TV and I'm gonna watch TV. And like the thing what I did is like, no, I'm not gonna buy a TV, I'm gonna buy books. I remember my first five books that I bought, all heavy books. John Calvin's Christian Institute of uh, uh, the Christian Religion, John Hobbes' Systematic Theology, um, I bought also uh, Josh McDowell Defense for like Christianity, and I also bought a, a, a commentary on Galatians by uh, Martin Luther, and I had a church history book. Man, so you 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 got yeah. into the tulip mix yeah. from the gate. From the gate. <laughs> from no the Benny Hinn, no yeah, I did when I was okay when I was in Juvenile Hall. I did like that was my faith. You know, like yeah. my faith was was a lot more like charismatic a lot pentecostal. yeah pentecostal you know and just because i seen a lot of like like i said i seen a lot of miracles and yeah. so like to me that's kind of like what led me but for some reason once i went to prison it was it was me i remember listening to a radio station and listening to i remember the radio station was because i got bused to high desert mm -hmm. i was i did my time there and i remember there was a, a christian a station called uh, the programs programs uh, radio station and it was all reformed. And I remember the first time I heard, yeah, I heard, um, I think it was uh, Lloyd Jones. And I, I was like, man, who is this? And I just remembered like the message was like so compelling to me. And I was just like, and so I would hear that every day. I would hear all these, you know, preachers. And we used to get the uh, 10th Presbyterian Church out of Philadelphia. And I remember his name was, I think it was... Um, I, he passed away though I used to hear him and so this is I, I just for some reason you know like you know I, you know that that scripture that says my sheep hear my voice and they follow yeah I heard I heard that and I just gravitated to like reading and that's what I did most of my time just and I, that's when I got into kind of like the like intellectual side of like Christianity you, you know what I find interesting is um you know you, you shared earlier how you just didn't feel like you fit in in a school setting. You didn't you didn't like school. Yeah, um, that wasn't your thing. And then fast forward, and you're now it's become your thing. Yeah. Like I'm gonna read. I'm gonna skip the TV. I want some books in in, in the cell, and I'm just gonna you know immerse in literature. It it, it it it's so fascinating what God does. Obviously, you have the Holy Spirit once you become born again and. He leads you into all truth. He becomes your teacher. I, I think a lot of people miss out on that. Like, I I, I talk to to many uh, believers, and and it's almost like they they skip over that part for some reason. It just seems like that, where the Holy Spirit is the teacher. He is the one that opens up your your mind, uh, helps you to actually understand what you're reading, and um, then that takes effect in your heart and. You know, obviously, then your actions, right? But that—that's—that's that's amazing, man. That to 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 know that here you are, you know, fast forward, 
And what you want to do is something that you didn't like from the gate, from the beginning, but now you're, you're, you're cool with that. So what happens after that? I mean, you know, so you're getting books, and then, then, then what? And then I end up going to Tehachapi State Prison. Tehachapi had a beautiful chapel, had the most amazing Christian library that I've seen. Even to this, like even in other like institutions that I was, Tehachapi was the best Christian library that I've ever, ever, ever stepped into. Did you run into uh, Ruben Riveros? He was a uh, a Baptist um, Minister, pastor, yeah, pastor, yeah. That, that was in there. Yeah, Ruben, yeah. You remember him? Yeah, I remember him. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I remember him. Matter of fact, the chaplain there was like, he was like a homie, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember him, yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think I think his name, there was another pastor by the name of Joel, too. Um, and he was there. But yeah, that was, and that was the place where I kind of, you know, I would say I was forged in like this, cave you know yeah. not to use the analogy of plato but like i was forged in this cave and education became big for me um i mean and i seen like god teach people how to read through the yeah. bible yeah so you know like it's just weird how through 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 the bible through christianity like you said you know i had a new thirst a new hunger yeah. um just thank god for my education too as a kid that i they taught me how to read so you know, thank God for that. Not everything was missed, you know, or lost. There were some things that I did gain, and and that's I I appreciate that. And you know, um, so you know, I just got this hunger for like even history, and you know, something that Benito Juarez says that he wished that Mexico was conquered. Benito Juarez was the first indigenous president of Mexico, um, and he wished that Mexico would have been conquered by Protestants, because then he believed he believed that. The Indians would read more their Bibles than rely on candles and images, you know, and that's huge. You know, that's huge because, you know, um, like what we like our heritage here is and I say Protestantism is the fact that, you know, we have the Bible and we need yeah. to read it, you know. Yeah. So that was that was beautiful. So me spending my time in prison was always working in the chapel, being in the in the Christian libraries also working in, in, in law libraries and reading, you know, law books and opinions. And that, that became also an educational part in me. Um, I was always also into the, like the arts, another thing that, you know, creative writing. And, and so I had like, I had, I had this hunger to like wanting to educate myself. And, and so the only thing that we had, the only medium was reading. Um, later on in, in my prison um, life, I, I, I was able to take some college courses and then I started kind of taking, when this started getting, like becoming more of, of a possibility, because it was just like talks. I remember in 2003, it was me being already in prison for like 15 years and I got this letter from uh, this organization that said, hey, um, we are gathering signatures so that we can change the law where we as a country don't punish our youth to life without the possibility of parole at the time there was only two countries that practiced this law, this punishment which is the u.s and the other one was a islamic country under sharia law so it was to them it was very draconian how is it that you know we have a we live in a country that is the, the most progressive and liberal country in the world and yet punish our youth to like your worst act is 
defining it's you're incorrigible you're unredeemable and so when i look at your story you're one year because you're 17 when you went in mm -hmm. and i think for that one year made that that big difference because if it would have fell on your 18th birthday oh, yeah. you might have not gotten that letter yeah because you're an adult right there that that would have cut you off so that one year or whatever couple of months it was days it was days it was 12 i was 12 days are you serious of my 18th birthday so yeah. because of those 12 days yeah this happens yeah bro that that yeah. that just gave me goosebumps man <laughs> that that's uh yeah. that's something else bro yeah. it was 12 days in fact that was the argument that the da used when i went back to get my sentence recalled yeah well, you know, you have to follow, you know, so the, a law comes in and it's a law that says that if you were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole and you were under the age of 18, you have now a right to petition the court to see if you get a recall of your sentence and get sentenced to a possibility. So when I went back to court, the DA made that argument. He's like, your honor, he was only 12 years <clears throat> 12 years, 12 days short of his 18th birthday. Why should he benefit from this law? And the judge looked at her and said, well, we have to have a mark of demarcation. Like That's 18 the is the age. Yeah. He was still 17. Like, it, like that argument doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah. But um, yeah, she made that argument. Like, wow, well, that he gets to benefit from this. Yeah. And there's people, I met people who were, they turned 18 the day they committed their crime. And that's it. And that's it. They didn't benefit. They didn't benefit wrong. with it. Yeah. Wow, so, man. Yeah. That's uh, dude. That that's that's heavy right there, man. That's heavy. So, and, and just for our listeners to know, so you're on, on your fifteenth year. Yeah. It's a long time, man. In in, in an institution, yeah. and so far you've been to two state prisons at this moment, yeah. and you you're staying there. How does that? You 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 come from high desert. And now you're in Tehachapi. I'm in Tehachapi, and oh, by this time I'm in Calipatria. So this is now your third. This state is my prison. third state prison. Yeah. You know, here here's what I want some of you guys out there that that you're listening to this. We get used to staying in one place, yeah. you know, and, and you start to know the program. People know you, and it, it you know you. I don't want to say you get comfortable in prison, but. You already know the routine. So every time you move from one place to another, you're, it's almost like you're learning and they're learning you. From, it's like starting from scratch almost. So here's, you're going to Calipatria now, and now what? So I'm in Calipatria and Calipatria was, was another like culture shock for me. It was a different experience just because I'm, I'm, I'm coming in high desert and you know, all the CEOs over there in high desert are all white. Six foot five, six foot four. Yeah, you know, yeah, races, and you know, <laughs> I'm experiencing racism like at its worst. Yeah. Like, and so, so I come to Tehachapi, and Tehachapi, you start seeing, you know, things a little bit different. You start seeing, you know, like maybe a Mexican CEO, and a lot of the CEOs yeah, are, are living in El Centro. Yeah. And, <laughs> now, when I go to Calipatria, it's, it's like I'm in like Tijuana. Like these <laughs> these CEOs are speaking Spanish now. Yeah. I'm like, what? Right. So a lot of them are actually field workers, you know, from yeah. Coachella. You know, yeah. so they were field workers there in Calexico. They have a lot of field workers, and you know, um, yeah. So I come, I come to Calipatria, and it's just like, man, it's it's different, yeah. and. But Calipatria, I spent 10 years in Calipatria. Calipatria was the worst place that I ever like did any of my time. It was very violent. It was very violent. Um, uh, for some reason, Calipatria is always known for even um, like 
having riots. Like my yard was known for having riots with COs a lot. Mm-hmm. That's when like the East Coast Crips went into the into the program office, that sergeant, yeah. and you know, all hell broke loose. And that was the yard I was in. B yard was always known for more violence within within inmates. Inmates. C yard was known for like also like inmates. Um, but oh, riots in BR with the blacks and Mexicans, you know, so it was, it was weird. Like, and like you said, you know, you're coming into a different institution. They have different rules. Yeah. Like every yard has its own rules, you know. So, yeah, me coming to Calipatra was also, I, again, 10 years there. I knew that I couldn't go to a minimum facility. I couldn't go to a level three. I couldn't go to a level two. So my stay at this point, I started in like level four, 180, mm-hmm. which is. A higher security um, prison then you go to a level four 270 which is and the only difference is that you know in the 180 it's just more control movement yeah um, the sections are are more contained you know they have a wall of partition so you go into a building they have a B and C pond they just have a partition there they have a kitchen so you never step out yeah like you once you go to a 270 then you that's step, it you're, yeah. you're, you're stuck there yeah you're, you're you step up but that was going to be my home like a level four well you were at that facility and it was such a tough place to be were you able to establish spiritual habits bible studies quiet time for reading i mean how was your spiritual life while you were there you know what i think alipatra was where i kind of like flourish and and you know i started preaching the word i started teaching the word i was i was actually the interpreter of the one we had a prison uh we had a prisoner who was actual like the the pastor he was he was the one that was bringing the sermons on sundays and he would do it in he would do it in spanish but i would translate for him in, in english so he had an interpreter so we had a dual service there and and so then he, little by little i started kind of like everything and this is this is how it worked like i felt like god was forging me in high desert in Tehachapi, so when I came to Calipatra, it's like I hit the ground running. It's like yeah. I was so seasoned and ready for yeah, it, yeah. you know. And I remember, I still have it. I wish I would have brought like I have like sermons like tight, like that big. Like I have Manila folders of just sermons that I that I that I did every weekend. You're I like interpreted. you're like Joe MacArthur at that <laughs> point, <isn't it? laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, yeah, so I get I get really involved in the chapel there, and I remember, like Calipatra gets a hundred and I remember when I was there, one hundred and nineteen, hundred and eighteen degrees, and for Mexicans, it's mandatory for you to be in the yard, even if it's like Super Bowl or or whatever, you're gonna be in the yard, you're gonna be out in the yard yeah. at a hundred. So the only refuge they had was chapel service. And I would bring all these guys into into the service, and wow. like, yeah, I, I had a we had a full <laughs> service every Sunday, <laughs> and un, 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 until the enemy kind of like realized, hey, like. So did they give you a nickname? Did you have a nickname? No, not, not, not a nickname. <laughs> Pastor Pastor Joel, or what would they call you? Uh, no, nah, they wouldn't call me Pastor. I was I was kind of like the co-pastor, you would say, but yeah. I wasn't really the pastor. But yeah, I was as far as um, me having the ability to like to um, to really you know like preach and teach and and also um, had a good relationship because I worked in the chapel with a lot of Muslims, so I would have a, some you know lively debates with them about you know the Bible and our faith. And, <laughs> lively debates. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I you know I even became a defender of the faith. There you go. <laughs> How long were you at that particular uh, prison? I was there ten years. I was there 10 years 
Um, and that's kind of like where the first time I started. So I remember like there was this charismatic, charismatic brother who believed he would say, I believe in the full gospel. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? And he would say, <laughs> he would say, well, I believe in signs and wonders. And, yeah. and I remember like there was a, a riot that happened with, with, well, before that, when this law was being like, it was it was the first time like people were hearing about oh they're thinking about changing the law for juveniles for people who committed the crimes under the age of 18 and i remember he looked at me and he was a black brother and he looked at me and he said brother god's gonna let you go and i'm like what are you talking about he's like god's gonna create a law to let you out and i think that this is this law oh wow See, and this um, is why you need us bro this is why you need our Pentecostal uh, yeah. spin on these things. Look, bro. I'm not gonna look. I'm not gonna lie. Like you know, even when my life was in danger, because it did, be, it did get to that point where they were thinking about like stabbing me, removing me out of the yard because I didn't participate in a riot. Yeah. You know, and I didn't participate in them boarding up. You know, um, I remember me going to them, and they would like lay hands on me and pray, like earnestly pray. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, look, brother, I don't want to be presumptuous, but you know, I need prayer. Like, I really, I'm dealing with this, with this, like, to me, it was, I mean, I was dealing with fear, but at the same time, I was dealing with, well, you know, I dedicate my life to, to, the, to God. And from, at, as far as I knew, like, God had always, you know, took care of me. So, yeah. you know, and I remember that, like, I would go with them and they would pray earnestly for me and, and, and like, nothing would happen. I remember he said, Joel, don't worry. God will remove a whole yard for you. And I was like thinking, this guy's crazy. I'm thinking, this guy's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, I, I not that I doubt God, but this Christ, and this is what happened. So a riot happens. It was only like the blacks were locked down. It was Mexicans, white. Uh, we were out in the yard. Um, I, I remember it was like 9.30 in the morning. I'm exercising at the, where they have the pull-ups. And they stabbed someone right next to, because Calipatra was divided by a gate. So on, on the other exercise room, a Mexican gets stabbed and like they're just not like they're just stabbing like they really want to put this guy down yeah. and so you know shots get fired and they're still going at it the CEOs go there they stop the the stabbing they find the knives they find everything and one of the sergeants says search the whole weight room this one and the other one and where I'm at, well, I'm thinking this is, you know, all right, they're going to search us. They strip search us. And one of the guys in my yard had a, had a knife. And so when they're strip searching him, he gets the knife and he stabs the cop. Oh. That's it. it, it, it so not, now we have a riot. Yeah. Now we have a riot with the comms. Now I see just the guy in the tower. They're just saying, shoot, shoot, shoot. And they're mm -hmm. just, people are jumping over the fence. Like it's, it's just full out riot. Mm -hmm. And I remember just getting down, me praying and asking God, like, man, see me through this. It's weird. CEOs come. Everyone's already, like, this starts at 9. So this is 4 p.m. in the evening. Yeah. We're there, you know, on the yard. Zip yeah, zip-tied, you know, facing down. And I remember two officers coming. This guy was the only one that didn't get in. You haven't read my book? <laughs> You need to read the book, bro. Uh, so they, <laughs> they pick me up from the yard and they take me back to my cell. Everybody's looking at me. Where are you going? I'm like, I don't know. And they take me to my cell. Everyone from that yard goes to the home. Wow. <laughs> that is awesome. And I'm thinking like, man, he did he he did remove a whole yard from me. 
So what do you think about Pentecostalism now? <laughs> I'm just saying, bro. You know, I'm, I'm going to shout out to all our Pentecostal believers out there. You know, uh, we're a team, brother. <laughs> Like, yeah. Part of the Red Sea for you, man. Yeah, yeah, he did. You know, <laughs> to this day, you know, uh, and I use that in my parole board hearing, bro. Yeah, man, I use that's that. In, awesome. I have pictures and everything because yeah. you know some of the some of the guys got got charged for attempted murder, and a lot of them got convicted. You know, and and they send me the pictures like, hey, and I have pictures of me prone in the yard and like, cause they didn't have no record that I was there. It's weird. Wow. Like they didn't, they didn't never make them. Like they didn't know if I, if it wasn't me getting all this information for them, they would have never known. Know. They yeah. would have never known. They wow. would have never known that I was, I was part of a riot where the officers came and said he wasn't involved. Let's get him out. Let's get him out. Wow. Yeah. See, this is the thing. Like Joe, you well, obviously. Joe knows the book inside out. Uh, I'll talk about Joe, uh, the co-host here. Mm -hmm. um, a similar thing happened to me, very similar. And this is the first time I'm hearing you tell, you've never told that story to me, yeah. just so that everybody knows out there. But something very similar happened to me. So, and to me, it's like it, those moments, there's no denying that God takes care of his own. It doesn't matter where you're at, doesn't matter you could be out here in a, in, in, in a, you know, in a tight space, uh, with your, you know, back against the wall. God will come through on your end, like on his end. Like he's going to protect his people regardless of, you know, I think, you know, I think it's so important to understand that when God says something in the Bible that he's for you and he's not against you. You know, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He it, that's not like small talk to to God. That's those those aren't just normal words. Those are words that carry power and strength. And we can depend on God to come and rescue us and and save us. You know, salvation is a whole package deal. It's not just, you know, you're safe from going to hell and then that's it. No, it, it there's blessing involved. There's him taking care of you. He's it's it involves him feeding you, sheltering you. It's 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 a whole blessing package, and and this is why you know uh, you know I believe that we're in the times right now that the church is coming together, and what I mean by that is we're dropping the labels, uh, and I'm seeing more and more of this uh, you know at large here that a lot of churches that where they're getting good solid biblical teaching. It's not that we're dropping the labels in, in, in saying, you know, well, you know, we're going to do away with this denomination or that. But when, 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 when we look at Christianity, what matters the most? Well, it's the basics. It's the elementary stuff. You know, do we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yeah. Whether you're a Calvinist or, you know, whether you're a Pentecostal, whatever you are. Is Christ the Son of God? Yes. Did he die for your sins? Yes. Did, was he buried and rose uh, again on the third day? Yes. Is he Did he resurrect and is he sitting at the right hand of power and majesty? Yes. Then that right there makes us brothers. And I think it's so senseless on 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 all corners when we make when we when, when we can't get it along, and, and and you know because of you know certain issues, uh, uh, you believe this way or I believe that way. It's senseless, and, and and I think that the enemy has used this 
for a long time to separate even the church and divide it. When, you know, here's, I love the story, man. I, I, I'm so glad that God, um, you know, reminded you of the story to share it because I've learned a lot from, you know, uh, tulip believers and, you know, uh, reformed uh, brothers. And I've learned a lot from Pentecostals. We both have so many similarities in that God saved us, that God came through on our behalf. You know, I want to, I want, if you could share with us, I mean, you know, some of you that are out there listening right now, you heard um, Joel say, you know, I was here 10 years, I was here, this is my 15th year, and you're racking up years in this place. How many years altogether? 21. 21 years in prison, 21. straight. It's right. a long time. It's two decades, brother. So it came a point in Calipatria where it was time for me to move. I just, I, I, I didn't want to be in, like I knew that I was going to die there. Yeah. And I remember, again, this Pentecostal brother comes to me and he was black. He was like one of my good, good brothers there. And I remember he saying, hey, read this. And he was showing me a pamphlet of a prison in Lancaster, a yard that was called, at first it was called um, an honor yard. But then they renamed it to the Progressive Program Facility. And it was a yard where, where people that most of them had life without were spending their time there. And they didn't have any of the prison politics. They didn't have any of the segregation as far as like out in the yard. And he says, brother, we can go there and we can take our shoes off and be in the grass and hug each other. And like nothing would happen to us. And we can eat out in the yard and break bread. Wow. And I remember me looking at him and it's like, man, you're right. And I started inquiring about this yard and everyone was telling me, you can't go there. And I'm like, why? Because no Mexicans can go there. And I'm like, well, and they were saying, well, they actually said no Sudeños can go there. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, well, I'm not a Sudeño. Yeah. And he's like, well, I wouldn't recommend it, bro. Cause you're, if you go there, you're kind of like going to no return. Yeah, your prison career. And I'm like, well, I did 10 years here. I can do another 10 or 15 years there and maybe 20 and I can probably die there. And in my mind, I'm like, well, that's a place for me to like, I want to just be free from the tyranny of like the Sureños, yeah, the yeah. tyranny of like these the underground rules. Yeah. And so let me go there. And I remember me, um, it was going to be my annual. Yeah. And I remember me having a discussion with my uh, counselor and said, hey, I'm going to go to the PPF program. And he's like, you can't go there. I'm like, why not? He's like, because you're a Sureño. I'm like, no, I'm not. He's like, well, it says here you, you and I go, well, yeah, that's what it says, but that's not what I'm. What, what does a Sureño mean? I don't know what that means. Yeah, well, it's a, a, a Sureño is basically, you know, if you were from Sri Gang, then um, you fall under like a political structure in prison that is a Sureño. It's a Southern California um, gang member. That's a special class in prison when they say that everybody knows what yeah. 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 So you know, within Mexicans you're divided in, in three ways. We're actually four of your Latino, I'm gonna put it you're you can be another, which is basically your Central American or South American or Puerto Rican, Caribbean, uh, Latino, or Euro Sureño, which is Mexican origin from like uh, street gangs down south, or you can be a Norteño, and there's also the Bulldogs. So you have like different type of classifications. When I went to High Desert, because you had Norteños in the yard, just because I was I was from South, they'll put me in there with a Sureño or someone from down South. Yeah. They'll never put me with a Norteño to live with that's in the cell. So- Like uh, Northern California? 
Northern yeah. Californian Hispanic. Yeah. Yeah, because the yeah, so so and 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 I remember my counselor saying to me when I wanted to go to the PPF program, they're like, you you can't go, and I'm like, why not? Yeah, I can go, and he's like, well, I wouldn't recommend it because you know once you go there, you can't go anywhere else. I'm like, yeah. well, I'll take my chances. I said, I only got like wow. twenty more years to live. I said, I'm good, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember I did. I was and I remember the homies would tell me, man, Joe, I don't know if I, I wouldn't, I would hate to see you because you're a good dude. And there's nothing wrong with you, like you don't. And I'm like, brother, it's not a PC yard. It's not a. It's not a sensitive needs yard. Yeah. Why? Why can I go there? Like, if I'm not with this, wouldn't you want? Like, you don't want me in your business. Yeah, yeah. Like, why not? And I'm out of your way, pretty much. Yeah, I'm out of your way, and like, I, you know, and I remember they were just saying, man. You know what? And some of them were like, man, that's a good yard for you, man. Just go. Like the, oh, some people, really? yeah, some people <laughs> would be like, you know what? That's good for you, bro. Like you do good there. Like you. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I went, it was just like, it was an amazing yard. Um, oh, so you finally did get to yeah, the I, I went. Yeah, I went okay. to the PPF yard, you know, against everyone, you know. Yeah. And um, I remember when I went there, it was just the most peaceful yard I've ever, I've never encountered anything like it. And But you know what? It lacked in the church. Oh, man. So, you know, that was the only downside. Yeah. You know, it's like when there is a lot more freedom, for some reason, you know, like there wasn't a dependence. There was too in too much independence yeah. and not dependence on God. Yeah. And you know, they had all these other like educational programs that, to me, I felt like, well, I don't know if I need these programs because they're hitting at the symptoms. And like I, I was already cured, you know, because God went to the root, which That's was my right. heart, yeah. and changed me and transformed me. Like that type of rehabilitation to me was like, I looked at it like, well. I don't know if that's truly transformation. That's rehabilitation, which just is a change of like behavior and habit, but yeah. it's not like... It's not the root. It, yeah, it's, it doesn't deal with the root of the problem, yeah. which is human nature and the heart. Yeah. And so this is the place where it was 2010. It was the place where, you know, my dad came to visit me after... Um, my dad died when I was in prison. This is the last year I saw my dad. Oh, wow, man. So, you know, I remember my dad, um, he came to visit me and, and I remember the last visit that I had with him, he said to me, you know, man, you know, like, I think you're going to go home at some point. And I'm looking at my dad, like, what makes you think that? He's like, I don't know. This place is different. I can see it. I can see it in your face. I can see it. You know, something's different. And he says, your mom always believed that. And I believe it too. That was the last time I saw my dad. Wow. Um, my dad passed away and, um, and, you know, like I would say, this is 2010, 2011. I remember that they pushed, they pushed the law and the law fell by one vote. So that throws a, a damper on you. Yeah, by one vote, it got, and I remember me getting a letter from, from, from Elizabeth Calvin, who is an attorney for Human Rights Watch. And she's the one that's been on the forefront on this. And I remember she is not giving up and she's like, look, we lost this battle, but the war still continues. And I'm like, at this point, it's from 2000, you would say 2004 to 20, um, you're talking about 2011. And I'm thinking it's not going to happen. Yeah. Like this is That's not a lot of happen. time already in between. Yeah. And, you know, we've been defeated. Like this bill has been defeated over and over and yeah. over again. And then I'm thinking, well, this is not going to work. This is not going to pass. And I remember I went out to a visit one Saturday and I met my boss, who is my boss now. I met him in prison <laughs> because he, he was there visiting some some people. And, uh, 
and he he tells me i remember meeting him at visiting room through someone he says hey this is the guy i was talking to you about and i see this like sharp jewish guy and he comes up to me and he says what's your name and i tell him my name and he goes you're juno Alwap? i said yeah he's like i want you to meet someone and i meet some other guy who used to who works with um elizabeth calvin and he worked for human rights watch and also a priest by the name of um uh, Kennedy and and they're saying hey don't worry like the bill is gonna pass and I'm like <laughs> you think it's gonna pass I mean we just it didn't pass last year and he's yeah. like it's gonna pass and it's gonna pass and I go are there gonna be any amendments because they wanted to amend the bill I guess yeah. the, the the problem with the one person the assembly person who who dropped out at the 11th hour was that he believed that the that the that they had to make these changes and the change was basically that the people who were the trigger persons shouldn't get relief from this bill. It should just be people who were in a vehicle or on the yeah, on site yeah. when the crime was committed. When the crime was committed, the non-trigger persons. Yeah. And so um, he's like, no, it's, it's not. We're going to go just as it is. We're not going to amend. Because at the time, there was only 300 of us in the system. Yeah. You know, and so if they were to put that amendment it would have excluded like more than half yeah. so they said no and in 2011 um this case by the name of miller versus alabama the attorney is um brian stevenson he argues this case before the Cal before the u.s supreme court which was a was it was an lwap case it was a, a, a underage he was actually a 15 or 14 year old wow. who got life without in georgia yeah. and he argues that case before the u.s supreme court the u.s supreme court says it's unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to life without the possibility of parole yeah there was a catch though to that but the fact that the u.s supreme court ruled on it and they made a categorical an application categorically that that means that anyone who was situated in the same situation as a juvenile being sentenced to life without was gonna uh, find relief. And, you know, that was the first time that they ever applied like a rule that only applies to like death penalty cases, that it's categorical, that everyone gets affected, you know, cause they could have ruled and not made it categorical. That's only for like the death, death penalty cases that they do that. But they said, hey, this is almost like a death sentence. So we're gonna apply that category. And, we all benefited from that. The only thing is that California is not a mandatory sentence. In California is discretional. It's not a mandatory sentence for juveniles. But then, you know, they went back to the drawing board. They did research and they found that although it's true theoretically in practice, they never really applied, you know, the lower sentence. Like judges never use that discretion because, yeah. you know, it's weird. You know, you had a state like California, for example, you had a county like San Francisco and Oakland. You know that no one, no juvenile had ever gotten sentenced in San Francisco with the with the with the life without the possibility of parole. I did not. And in Oakland, it was like exponentially, like ninety percent of yeah. the juveniles that were getting sentenced were getting sentenced to that. So it's like, what's going on here? Yeah. Why such a disparity? So it was obvious that you know it was targeting like really minorities. And, and for the most part, I think that, you know, this is an era in Los Angeles where lawmakers are fed up. Law enforcement is fed up with the gang violence. I mean, this is not, you know, you know, there's gangs now. 
but nowhere near the violence that the 80s brought and the 90s, the early 90s brought. No, not even close. I mean, you know, I remember when I first stepped out here and I saw um, a dude dressed apart, you know, how we used to dress. And he's at a stop at a uh, bus bench with his Walkman on. Like, that was the thing to do. Like, he was in, he didn't look worried one bit. And I knew that that was, the, the whole culture had changed. There were, it wasn't like it used to be. Because, you know, try doing that in the 80s. Uh, try doing that, like dressing the part and just kind of just waiting around in the, you know, in a bus bench. Like, that's not going to happen. You're going to get, you get stabbed, shot, jumped. Something's going to happen to you if you're just dressed like that. Even being just dressed like that yeah. will get you killed. So I think it, it's, it was an era where people were just fed up. The crime rate was up the roof, you know, um, bloodshed on every corner. And, and it was just so out of control that they just wanted to get rid of the problem. And the way to get rid of the problem is lengthy life sentences and, and, and you know, wow, man. Yeah, it, it was used as a deterrent. And like, yeah, absolutely. And like, you're right, you know, like at the time, during the time, like it was, it was gang violence was at its highest point. Yeah. So when I went back to court, actually you know part of my mitigation was an expert to go and like he found like this the the stats of like the gang violence throughout the years from the 80s all the way to the point where i committed my crime 1991 was the worst year out of all the gang violence at the time i remember when they came in there asking me about like what happened during that year? Because, you know, I committed my crime in November. So it was the end of 1991. Yeah. But I remember, like, that year, like, 17 of my friends passed away. I remember going to funerals, like, every other month or every mm -hmm. month, three, two. Like, they were killing us by two and three. And I was just like, and I remember me explaining that to them. And they were just like, yeah. and so they did research. Part of my mitigation was that. And they found LAPD records. And, like, they found, like, a how many people died in LA in 1991? It was, it was, the thousands. it was, yeah, it was high. So, you know, yeah, the response for, for, for like LA and, you know, for the gang violence was like get harsher with, like they yeah. declare war on gangs. Yeah. They declare war on, on drugs. They, you know, it was, it was that era. It was that era. So, you know, we got caught up, you know. The one thing that I didn't get to experience is the gang injunctions because I was already inside. And this is like, I think it's like either mid-90s is when they start doing all that, right? Yeah. I'm not sure, but I wasn't around for for that. Yeah, no, I missed that too. But like, it was part of your profile because they were yeah. already, they militarized the, like, the um, LAPD. Yeah. You know, this is when, you know, they got their own crash unit yeah. just specifically for gangs. They started profiling gang, gang members. Take us to those final days when you are in prison and how that information came to you and how you learned of it. Uh, and then I'm dying to hear about your first days back. I mean, after 20 years behind bars, dude, the world just had to look strange to you. But uh, so how did that information roll down to you? And, and these attorneys obviously are working hard on your behalf, which this sounds so great. Elizabeth Calvin through Human Rights Watch and all these other organizations that, you know, at the time you had ARC, you had ARCN, the organization I work for, and you had all these people involved um, they're like, hey, the U.S. Supreme Court has spoken. They said it was unconstitutional. Let's push this bill. And without, like, it was it was so fast and so quick that everyone, like, 
all the senators and assembly members said, hey, they signed it. Wow. And it passed. So I, I, I can tell you the day. It was September 29th. <laughs> look, it was September 29, 2012. I was in my cell and he hasn't, he had like, the last day was the 29th. September 29th was the last day for him to sign that bill. But that falls on a Sunday. Yeah. And I'm thinking, hey, it's Friday. I'm calling my attorneys. What's going on? Yeah. You know, at this time, Loyola it, it has my case. And I'm like, are they going to, is he going to sign the bill? And he's like, they're like, well, he hasn't signed it yet. And I'm like, oh, I don't think he's going to sign it then. Yeah. And he goes, why do you say that? Because it's the weekend. It's he the doesn't weekend. work on the weekend, yeah. you know, but. You know, he does work, yeah, yeah. you know, and so they're, they're like, no, 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 he does work. Don't worry about it. I'm like, okay. So I'm here like on the news trying to like watch the news. I'm, at the time I have my cellmate, he's a Mexican national and he watches nothing but Univision and I'm over here surfing the channels. I remember Sunday, 6 p.m., September 29, 2012, I'm looking at the world news because there's nothing local. And my room, my cellmate is like, what's going on? I'm like, hey, you stay on Univision, see if you see anything, <laughs> if he signs the bill. And I'm over here surfing. And he says, hey, I think there's something in the scroll. And oh, I jump, little, yeah. Banner. So I'm on the top bunk. I jump down and I look and it says right there in Spanish, it. Governor Brown gives um, juveniles, you know, that were sentenced to cadena perpueta, yeah. yeah. you know, that were sentenced to life without a possible parole, a possibility. Now, Man, what did that do to your heart? Dude? Look, I say this. I felt like I was always surviving in prison. Yeah. But in that moment, like I began to live. Like this was a reality now. Like it wasn't delusional for me to believe yeah. that I was going to be out one day. It wasn't delusional. Like I, this was real. And I just remember that at that moment, like for the first time, like I felt like I was alive. That's so powerful. You know, you you were living, you were surviving, you were protected. You were doing the best you could with what you had, but that little glimmer of you could head out that gate and suddenly you wanted to live again. You know, that's an amazing description of what you're saying. I just want to know, did you get a hold of that crazy Pentecostal dude <laughs> <laughs> and write him a wheelie and be like, hey, dude, no, he you ended, were right, bro. <laughs> yeah, no, no, seriously. He ended up being in that yard with me. No way, yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they all got to see me like leave that prison. Get, and, get and, from them. and he rem I remember like him hugging me and telling me That's powerful, man. Yeah. That's powerful, yeah, I know. Joe. I know. Wow. I know. And like I was the fourth person to get relief under that law, under that bill. Number four. Yeah, number four. I was the fourth person out. So I remember even like everything was so amazing. Like even me going back to court and the DA was like the special prosecutor from Compton Court. And she was just like, well, I've never seen anything like that. This guy spent 21 years in prison. There's no disciplinary, you know, write-up. Yeah. There's nothing. This guy is so clean. Like, how did, how did this happen? Yeah. You know, and I remember that she tried to oppose because that was her job, yeah. was to oppose me getting my sentence recalled. But I remember that after, you know, the judge, you know, he, he, he said he's recalling my sentence. She came up to me, you know, and she she put her hand on my on my shoulder and she says, "Hey, congratulations. Um, that's some, that's amazing, you know." And I'm there celebrating with my attorneys, my parents, and everyone's in the back. Like the whole Loyola Law School was in the back, and yeah. you know, it was just an amazing feeling too. What did that last night, you know? Because uh, I don't know how they, they they did it in Lancaster, but you know, you get that pink slip. Uh, in, in your door 
that you're paroling the next day. What did that feel like, man? Like, like to you, what was that like? Well, you know what? It was, it was, um, it was weird because, um, you know, I have to wait 150 days. Yeah. You know, because I have to go to a parole board hearing. Yeah, yeah. Like, it wasn't just because I have my sentence recalled doesn't yeah. mean that that was a free ticket yeah. out. I still had to go through another process, yeah. which is a parole board hearing. And, like, as soon as I go back... That sounds like that would be hard to wait, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The longest uh, couple of days yeah, well, there. Once you get found suitable from your parole board hearing, yeah. then you have 150 days because it's a review now. So yeah. the board... They have a special board in Sacramento that reviews that. And then it goes, because it was a homicide case, it goes before the governor for 30 days to his office. And he has the last, you know, that's the last so. process. Yeah, that's the last screening. And so I remember uh, I was at uh, my 100 and, I was at uh, 110 days. Um, I was supposed to get paroled on December 25th. That was going to be my Christmas? Day. Yeah, Christmas. <laughs> um, I remember the um, my counselor calls me and he says, "Hey, you're going to be out soon because he hasn't. He's not going to take action on you, and uh, so be expecting you're going home any day now." Wow. And on December first, twenty fifteen, it took it took me like three years. Wow. Twenty fifteen. You know, um, I remember they. They racked my door early in the morning. Said, Five hey, in the morning. Transpack, you're going to R&R. &R, and I already knew everyone's like, everyone knows. Yeah, that's the best feeling. Huh? <laughs> yeah. That's such a good feeling. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you know, oh, man. Yeah. And it's a day that you'll never forget. Yeah. You'll never forget that. You're going R&R. Mm -hmm. &R and... You know what? Like, you know, like, it's something special, yeah. you know, to be um, that moment of, Man, I'm going, I'm setting free. You know, it's so American. I say it's so American just because freedom means so much to yeah. us, you know, and it means so much, especially to someone who has forfeited that. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, freedom was like, man, I'm experience, you know, what it is to be home again and yeah. like, taste my mom's cooking and be able to like spend the night with her. And... Speaking of cooking, what was your first meal oh, when you touched down? It, honestly, it was, uh, it was uh, my, so my, I had this thing that I wanted to eat a steak, and it was a ribeye steak. Yeah, the ribeye steak. Yeah, the ribeye steak. <laughs> That's yeah. the best ribeye steak. You're chasing oh, yeah. that first meal. Up. <laughs> yeah, it was the best ribeye steak. But you know what? Like, three months later, you know, that feeling was, like, I, I thought there was never going to be a feeling that was kind of, kind of like, compared to that feeling of being yeah. released. Through my boss, I went back to prison. I went back to the same yard. I was, a I was able to go back into the prison that I parole from, bro. What? Yeah. So Common was throwing a concert, and my boss was the one that kind of like organized that. Yeah. And he says, "Hey, you want to come to Lancaster?" And I'm like, I don't. Oh, "He goes, man. I'll get you in there. Don't worry. You want to come?" I said, "Yeah." I'm not gonna lie, bro. I went back to that yard, and when I stepped in there, the men when they saw me, bro, like crying, like you know, I hugged people that I spent, you know, years with, years and had life without, but. For them to see me out and to come back, it was tangible proof that, hey, this is real. Yeah. Like, I brought so much hope to these men, you know? Yeah. And, like, to see that, like, you know, and I compare it that that was the greatest feeling ever because, you know, I cried with these men there. Yeah, yeah. And, like, they saw me and they held me and they knew that at some point, you know, that was going to be a reality for them. And I remember, like, you know, I used this description, like, when the American soldiers went into Auschwitz and the Jewish people, like when they saw the soldiers and that, that something lit up to them, like hope it was came alive. hope came alive. And that's how it felt. I remember 
you know, Common was there. We went into the unit where I was at, and everyone, instead of going with Common, they came to me. Yeah, you're you're one of their own. You know, it's like, and I'm like, hey, guy, this is Common. Like, you know, you know, it's like, hey, what's up, Common? Like, <laughs> you know? Wow. Man. And I remember, you know, so I opened up. I opened yeah. up his concert. My boss is like, you're going to speak to these men. And I remember when I went into the stage, like, everything was quiet. It was like a pin drop. And I spoke to these men, you know, and they were just like so excited, so happy, cheered me. And like, you know, common acknowledge that it's like, whoa, like, man, yeah. like, you know, and so it was very, very special. That to me was the greatest feeling. It even surpassed my release just because it was more collective. It was more of like. You're, you're coming in as proof. Yeah. That God exists, that God moved heaven and earth for you. Yeah. And a lot of these men are out now, you know, because wow. the governor pardoned them. Like, it's just so amazing to see now yeah. that, you know, I go now and I see these men out and, you know, we spent so many years together and to be able. And they always say, like, man, I remember the day you came back, bro. Like, that's when I really, like, sunk in that this is real. You know, the, the power of a second chance, the power of a second chance is is like none other, man. To, to know that you you messed up in life. And you know what I like about Joe, because I've, I've had conversations with him, is that nowhere in your speech, bro, is, is there a victim mentality. Nowhere in your speech is, you know, I didn't deserve this. I didn't, you know, and blaming, you know, society or whatever. You took responsibility for what, what happened. And... and to me, that that that's that that's the proof of someone that has been changed by the power of the gospel, by God Himself, and that second chance, man, you treasure. You know, every one of us that has been out, we treasure that that second chance. It's not a light thing, you know, and that's that's the difference between getting out and just going through rehabilitation, man-made rehab, re rehabilitation, and coming out a changed man because of the Holy Spirit, because of God proving, proving himself alive in our hearts, you know, and, and uh, man, uh, I, I want to get to the, to, to these parts because I think this, this, I hope you're enjoying this, this conversation here. Uh, you're out in your, in your car and maybe you're, you know, on a long drive and maybe by the time I, we release this episode, um, you know, uh, we're off of quarantine and, you just made a parole, um, but you're listening to this, and I'm hoping that you understand. Like, this is um, this is a real story. This is what really takes place, and um, but I want to get to the point where, you know, you're out. What are you doing now, bro? Like, what 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 have you? Because I'm not gonna say it. I want you to say. It. I want you to say because yeah. you went a little bit further on and just like just reading books you did something that that that's very you know an accomplishment that uh wow man uh hats off to you what is it that you did man i finished school I, so i went back to college so. <laughs> i went back to college and i got a degree so yeah i majored in uh, it's a liberal arts major with uh concentration in philosophy politics and history so yeah, I went back to school and like, so this, I've been out since 2015 and four years, 
of you know experience the college life that's been my life so it was last semester i was supposed to like i finished in the fall of 2019 uh, i was supposed to walk this spring but because of covid 19 i'm not gonna walk anymore but you know i got my diploma already and but yeah that was that was um that was always a longing for me and it was always a dream to be able to get a higher education and now i'm thinking about you know grad school if that's for me um i don't know if that's if that's something that i'll pursue just because it it would like i'm already in my mid 40s and it would it would lead me back into the you know my late 40s or 50s and and so it's a big step especially if i continue kind of like in political philosophy it's yeah. more of a, like a phd program than a master's program so you know, it's a lot more years in education and and whether I want to be a professor or not, it's, you know, but yeah, that's, you know, I went back to school and that was a big, like, it was a big challenge for me because of my yeah. age and, you know. <laughs> You're like a Rodney Dangerfield there <laughs> at that point, right? Yeah, <laughs> I am, I am, right. <laughs> But that's good stuff, man. Although people say, man, you don't look your age, but I, you know, it's it's mm -hmm. one of those things that... You've been frozen in time, man. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my social worker said, oh, you're pickled. You're you know? pickled. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Prison, that's a... prison pickles, pickles. Pickles. That's another way of looking at it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So I went back to school and like right now I'm working for my nonprofit and, um, and, you know, I'm considering, you know, whether I should go back to, to school or, you know continue doing you know i think that at the end of the day i i will be involved in some type of you know although my job is not ministry related but it's almost that because i'm serving you know my population yeah. you know i'm serving people who are coming out of prison and who want to reintegrate back into society so i work in the i i work in 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 the housing department of my organization which we provide housing for people who are now coming after serving we have people now who are in our housing who have served 40 years they went in there when they were 19 years old and they're out they're in their late 60s now you know and it's sad because you know like you said the first thing that that you encounter when you get out is that the world has changed it's all technology now yeah. and that's very intimidating i mean it was intimidating for me just imagine someone who's now old and like they're so terrified of the phone yeah. like you know it's it's just because you know everything you do now involves a phone and it involves yeah. you having passwords and username and like it, it, it's so demoralizing to them like why do i have to do this why can't i just go and it's why can't like, i just write a letter yeah, yeah. It, it dear whoever it doesn't I'm work out. that way yeah it doesn't work that way so they're just <laughs> terrified so you know yeah. and it's harder for them to get jobs and so you know my organization provides provides jobs for them careers uh provides housing wow. so that's so that's awesome. that's what I do in that sense. So I'm still serving in some small capacity. And what's that program called? It's called the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. ARC. Yeah, ARC. Wow, man, that's some good stuff, Joe. Man, that's some. What a great. What, what about your family? Do you have a wife? Or are you? No, I'm. I don't. I don't have a wife. I'm single. I'm looking for a good Christian he, he, woman. He, he's available, ladies and ladies. Uh, I was gonna say, ladies and gentlemen, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> ladies, uh, that's a single band right here, man. Hey, my pastor tells me, be careful what you wish for. That's right. You have no idea. <laughs> and, and he's and he's educated. So uh, <laughs> that's some good stuff, Joel, man. Yeah. So so you're helping out here. You know, it, it to me that's ministry, though, man. Right? Like, you know, that's 
Yeah. Because I'm sure that you're, you've had these conversations with some of these individuals and you're giving them the gospel at some point, you know, yeah. you're sharing stories. Some of them have done time with you, but it's an incredible life, man. I'm so, I'm so, I'm floored that, you know, and, and I, and I'm grateful that one, that you gave us the opportunity to share your story. Two, I'm, I'm grateful to God that, you know, he spared your life while you were in there. You served um, him from day one, pretty much, yeah. you know, and, and, and you, you didn't, you, you, you didn't turn to the right and you didn't turn to the left. You, 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 you looked at the goal and the goal was to please God, to live for him. And God honored, he honored your walk, brother. He honored your walk. He honored your, 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 your loyalty to him. You know, in these gangs, we always talk about loyalty. You know, uh, loyalty was a big thing. And we found out that that's a, that's, <laughs> they're not even close to that word. But when you're loyal to the Lord, man, he opens doors that no man can shut. And, and um, that's what he did with your life, man. And I'm so, I'm, I'm so glad, number one, to, to know you as a brother in the Lord. And two, to, to share these moments um, you know, it, it takes a lot for anybody to come into a podcast and just be open with their life, man. Um, what would you say, you know, to someone that that's just getting out who thinks, you know, this is going to be a culture shock? It's a whole new, uh, it's a whole new world when you come out. You know, uh, new buildings, new uh, type of cars. Then you don't even need a key no more. They're push starts. What would you say to that one, that one guy, or that one young lady that that just served time? You know, uh, what would you say to them? Um, what kind of advice would you have for someone that just comes out? I think my first advice to them would be like, you know, you have to take it very slow. I remember like the image of chew slowly. Yeah. And, you know, I think you have to like allow them. You know the the integration back to be slow yeah you know because um if if you think that you know someone who's done so much time like it's a whole new world and not only yeah. that you're gonna face new stressors in life that you never had to face when you were in prison yeah and i'm gonna just put one like family reunification is huge yeah. you're not just gonna come out here you're a grown man now and you're not gonna just come out here and live with your brother who's married and has kids Oh, man. You know, you're not going to live with your mother anymore because, you know, she's living maybe somewhere else where, you know, it, it, it's just so hard for someone like housing work. Like what? Like, what do you do now? Like yeah. now you have a record like there's still this stigma, yeah. you know, and you still have to overcome these things. And that's part of the consequences of, you know, our actions. Yeah. But it becomes very like demoralizing because now you're like, OK, I'm out, but I can't get a job because of my criminal record. I can't even get a, an apartment because I have no credit, right. no social, no, no history, no credit history. I have a record that, you know, it, it, so it becomes very challenging. And thank God for organizations like the one I work for and other organizations that provide resources and support and with, you know, people who understand what you're going through. And I think that that's kind of like my first thing is to like, hey, be involved with these organizations that are going to help you and support you because you need a lot of support because then you know once the job interview is scary as well 
Yeah. You know, because you have no history. Like, yeah. what do you say to a job interview? Like, what was your last job? You know, what did you, like, <laughs> you do in the last 21 years? You know, I mean, think about it. So, yeah. I mean, thank God that I was able to have people around me to help me. And, like, I went to a Christian school. So that was huge. Because, yeah. you know, I started off at junior colleges. And, you know, it was just so... It came to a point that I was going to give up. Just because, you know, everything was taught against, you know, everything that I believed. Yeah. And, you know, biology classes and, you know, it was just so hard for me. And I just felt like I couldn't find myself. Yeah. You know, this is not the intellectual honesty that I was expecting. And it wasn't until, you know, I go to a liberal arts college that was a Christian college where I really started, you know, like challenging these big ideas. But with uh, like a, a perspective of like God <laughs> It's weird because, you know, I remember at the beginning of the segment, I said that I never felt like I was American. I never felt that I was Mexican. I never felt that I was, you know, Salvadorian. But it wasn't until like Christianity came into my life and me embracing who I am in Christ that I felt very American, yeah. that I love freedom more than anything. And so my second thing would be to anyone getting down. It's like freedom is beautiful. Liberty is, is beautiful. It Living is. life is beautiful. Yeah. You know, so. Hey, man, man. Joel, Joel Needler, uh, you got any other uh, last uh, parting uh, um, comments here? Oh, man, that was, a, that was a great story. Thank you for sharing so much about your life, Joel. Uh, and God bless you uh, in your continued journey. Um, and I hope you find uh, a Proverbs 31 wife at some point. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, you know what my pastor says, you know, Joel? <laughs> you know, he's like the only freedom you have is to marry a Christian woman. That's it. And I'm just like, <laughs> can I evangelize someone who's not a Christian? They're like, no. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. Uh, <laughs> nice try. Yeah, it's, it's hard. But thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. It's great to meet you. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Joel, uh, for for your time, man, and, and your story. What a wonderful story, and we hope that it brings a lot of new hope to our listeners. And if you're out there, we are so thankful that you tune in and listen to this podcast. We're going to keep bringing stories like this and, and, and stories that are alike, stories that, that carry weight, stories that you could see redemption, uh, you know, right in that story. And um, I, I, I just want to say thank you to all our listeners out there. God bless you. Um, and, and stay tuned because the next person that we're going to be interviewing is another uh uh, individual with an amazing story himself. Um, his name is Rudy, and he's going to be with us on Monday. And um, what a what a wonderful story of redemption that one is as well. So uh, don't don't miss out. Make sure that you subscribe to the Shot Collar Podcast, and that you press on that subscribe button, beat it up, step on it, drop kick it, you know, <laughs> punch the lights out of that subscribe button. Make sure that you clock in. Uh, at the Shock Holler Podcast. Thank you so much. God bless you. Jesus is the answer.